listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. In recent months, growing calls to address systemic racism and oppression have led to some really significant shifts in our collective thinking about the ways white supremacy persists in so many different aspects of American life. These conversations have been a really long time coming. In addition to having these frank discussions about biased policies and uprooting unconscious racism, this moment is also bringing to light the importance of narrative equity. That is, the kinds of stories that are told in the media that we consume. One new offering that feels very tied to this shifting media paradigm is an exciting new podcast called Seizing Freedom. It takes listeners back to the lessons we all grew up learning about the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation and digs way, way deeper, specifically into the work that African Americans did to battle for and secure their own freedom. Joining me now to talk about some of those stories that are chronicled in this new podcast is Kadana Williams. She is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University and the host of Seizing Freedom. Kanata, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me back on, Stephen, and to talk about the show. Yeah. So first, let's start with why you think now is the right moment for this podcast. It is Black History Month, of course. But there also seems to be a real willingness to reconsider the stories we've all been told about our history as a nation and why those stories are, in many cases, grossly incomplete or, in other cases, just false. The stories about the Civil War, the stories about Reconstruction that were told and even taught in school, in your judgment, uh, don't measure up. Well, I think it's a great time to talk about this, for one, because we're in the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction. So it's 150 150 years years, ago. Yes. So, and it's gone unmarked. And it's gone unmarked and unremembered because so many people have this framework of Reconstruction failing. And that is really a white supremacist framework. Because part of what happens is that freedom isn't something that's given to African Americans. They have to seize it during the Civil War, and that's one of the things that they do. And once they gain their, um, once they gain legal freedom, they have to make it real. And so what you see African-Americans do during Reconstruction is to try to perfect American freedom, to extend rights and protections to everyone. So we don't get the 14th Amendment or the 15th Amendment. We don't get birthright citizenship. We don't get equal um, excuse me, equal protection under the law and due process as part of our national citizenship rights without African-Americans having fought that fight during Reconstruction. Hmm. So they did that. And so what we get is that afterwards, they start to make freedom real. And then they end up paying the penalty with Klan violence and attacks and rollbacks. And then what happens is that white supremacists play a significant role in writing them out of the history of the era. So we don't know about that. And then what happens is that we don't have a framework for understanding the long historical context of white people rampaging in the Capitol on January 6th. So, so I want to go back to the the sort of genesis of this idea for you, and and I think I'm right in saying that I saw you talking about on social media the way this gets taught to students in in, in schools, and you know that is the way that that for most people 
they come to understand history and the story of our of our country and the story of different people uh, in our in our country. Is this is this universally though uh, a story that's just told the wrong is told the wrong way? I think it is told the wrong way, and it's distorted. So if it's not erased altogether, it's distorted. And I was someone, I'm a late 70s kid. Um, and so coming up through school, we didn't learn about Black people in the Civil War. We didn't learn about Black people in Reconstruction. And even when I went to college, I went to CMU, you know, and I took a Civil War. I was interested in Black people in the Civil War. I took a, re, um, a seminar on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And in that course, there was no room for the, any discussion of Black people. Because what was made clear to me when I raised questions was that this was a white man's war and a white man's history of it. And so my questions weren't even welcomed or tolerated within that space. And so there is this sort of refusal to know this history, refusal to recognize Black people's role in this history. But and, and part of what happens is that you can only hold on to a lost cause narrative of the Civil War and Reconstruction if you shut Black people out or if you um, misrepresent them in the historical record. Mm. So, so the idea that Reconstruction failed, which is the predominant narrative about it, and, and certainly the U.S. government gives up on the idea of reconstructing uh, the South and the old uh, Confederate States. I, I, I always felt like that was uh, a sign that it was an acknowledgement that there was this tremendous racist, racist and white supremacist pushback uh, to, to to Reconstruction, and that uh, that that side essentially won that won that battle. Uh, talk about though. Talk a little more about though why you see that as. Uh, uh, a way of diminishing African Americans and and our contributions uh, to to the to the fight for freedom. I mean, I, I guess I've never I've never heard it cast in that in that light before. Right. I think that part of what happens is that when you push people to, on what they mean when they say Reconstruction failed, what you often get from them is an understanding that Black people fail to, or this sort of distorted um, belief that Black people fail to make freedom real. Mm. Black people fail to do their part, to live up to their expecta the expectations that were had of them. And the truth is that Reconstruction is violently overthrown. And it's violently overthrown. And we know this because there are tens of thousands of Black people who were killed. Who were killed, yes. During Reconstruction. And so... The sort of idea of Reconstruction failing erases the genocidal violence that's waged against them and the price that they pay for making freedom real, the price that they pay for it, insisting on being paid for their labor, but also understanding that slavery involved more than being denied pay to their labor. It involved the, you know, being denied access to your family, the right to make a living for yourself, the freedom of movement. And so what happens during Reconstruction is that African-Americans insist on having the nation recognize all of these things that the white population takes for granted as rights, as legally protected rights. And so they get it. They push, they drive, they insist, and they get it with the Civil Rights Acts of the era and with the, um, with the Reconstruction Amendments. And then part of what happens is that there is this white supremacist backlash. Mm. And the rest of the nation, because, you know, 
what we know from white Northerners and white Westerners is that they were willing to begrudgingly accept, the vast majority of them were willing to begrudgingly accept emancipation as a way to win the war. Right? Yes. Only, you know, only as a way to win the war. Well, if it's going to end the war, then okay, we'll accept it. But the vast majority of the white population in the North and in the West did not believe that slavery should be abolished. And they certainly did not believe that black people should enjoy, you know, should be able to give, should be able to get a piece of the American pie. All of the rights and privileges that white people took for granted and they enjoyed and saw as belonging only to them. And so they feel some kind of way about the 14th and 15th Amendment. They feel some kind of way about the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And so when the violence starts, many of them are just kind of like, well, okay, this is to be expected. You know, they lost the war. They just, they're just lashing out. Um, and there's no real investment in doing anything to stop the violence. Mm. And so, you know, it only becomes a convenient narrative to just say, well, just let the white Southerners, let the ex-Confederates have the South, let them do what they need to do to, you know, deal with the quote-unquote Negro problem, which is the sort of framing that Black people become a problem, free Black people are a problem, um, that they're not a problem in slavery. And so we're just going to let them have it and we're going to move on and do these other things while Black people continue to be subjected to genocidal violence. Yeah. Yeah. And so but and then and then what you do is you rewrite the history, right? You don't say we allowed genocide. We, you know, believe that only white people should enjoy the privileges and freedom of democracy. What you say is that reconstruction failed. It didn't work out. We tried, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a narrative that 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 supports white supremacy and it's a narrative that people have a vested interest in students learning in K through 12. Right. And then it has an impact on people's understanding of the world today. So they don't have a framework for understanding what African-Americans achieved during Reconstruction and the price they paid for it and the price that black people are still paying for their desire to be free and secure and equal in America. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Kadada Williams. She's a Wayne State University professor, writer, and historian who studies what happened to African-American survivors of racist violence. She's also the host of a wonderful new podcast from VPM called Seizing Freedom. And that's what we're talking about right now, this idea of recasting the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction and unearthing uh, stories about the role that African-Americans played uh, in the Civil War and Reconstruction, the role that they played in fighting for and securing their own freedom, not just uh, relying on uh, white America to to do that for them. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you want to give us a call, uh, if you have a question or story you want to share about the Civil War or Reconstruction. Uh, what has this year of social and racial reckoning taught you about the stories that were told and the narratives we accept as true. What parts of our history do you feel compelled to dig a little deeper into now so that you can know a little more about the full truth, about what maybe really happened uh, at some of these inflection points uh, in our history? What stories would you like to be seen told from different perspectives? And where do you think we stand uh, right now in terms of gaining as a country in 
telling these stories in a, in, a, in a truer sense, in a fuller sense. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to include you that way. Uh, before we get to listeners, Kadata, uh, this podcast so beautifully brings these moments and characters to life through really rich sound uh, and storytelling. I want to listen to a clip from the opening of episode two that's titled uh, A Powerful Black Hand, where we hear just a bit from an enslaved man named Harry Jarvis as he escapes the plantation where his owner is preoccupied with a party. One night, his enslaver held a raucous birthday party and Harry sees his chance. I know they all be drinking and carousing night and day, and all the servants be kept home. So I took the opportunity to slip down to the shore in the night, got a canoe and a sail, and started for Fort Monroe. He crossed 35 miles of choppy water across the Chesapeake Bay at night, alone. Didn't appear as if I'd ever get to land. But Harry knew he would rather drown in the Chesapeake then turn back for the shelter of the forest and risk being re-enslaved. So, so right there, we hear firsthand of the struggle for liberation as it exists in the hands of African-Americans who are enslaved. And right there, that's a very different kind of story about uh, that era than we are used to kind of focusing on. I mean, we're, we're focused on, uh, you know, the southern states and their desire to, to, to keep slavery as an institution and, and then to leave the union uh, as a way of preserving it. And then the war that, that, that follows. Again, uh, this is a different way of thinking of what was going on and highlighting the people whose lives hung in the balance here. Absolutely. I think one of the things to let the audience realize is that these records have existed since the time of the Civil War. So they've always been there. But historians have typically not paid close attention to them because they want to tell other stories about the Civil War, some of the stories that you just referenced. And so what we wanted to do in the show was to, first of all, make sure that we're privileging Black voices, you know, the records that are, uh, the stories that are generally ignored um, by the people who are telling these stories. And we also wanted to address the fact that most people hear about the Civil War and Reconstruction, they get the, the that story, the sort of 30,000 feet view, or, you know, they get it from that level. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to take people down to the ground, not just a bird's eye view, but down to the ground, into the lives and perspectives and experiences of people like Harry Jarvis. And one of the great things about someone like Harry Jarvis is that if you follow his story enough, you'll see that once he gets to the camp, he wants to fight for freedom. But he's told by a general that this is a white man's war Hmm. and white men are going to fight it. But what we know Harry Jarvis says to the general is that it'll be a black man's war before it's over. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. It is. And, you know, and obviously, Stephen, I'd like us to think about the fact that Harry Jarvis obviously knows something about himself and other black people and other enslaved people that obviously that general didn't recognize. And that many of us may forget today, he knew the power 
of Black people's desire to be free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We've already got a lot of folks who want to participate in this conversation. Let's start with Michael in Detroit. Michael, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, good morning. I just uh, turned on the car to head to get a cup of coffee, and I'm absolutely delighted by this conversation. Uh, I'm a, an assistant professor at Eastern Michigan University in urban and regional planning, uh, but I don't necessarily think about like sidewalks and bike lanes. I'm really interested in sort of how racism has shaped cities, especially Detroit and St. Louis. Hmm. And I taught a class last term on this big idea of the RE words, revitalization, reconstruction, what these words mean because I wanted to sort of sink it in the movement for Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, I, and I have to admit that my students had no concept of Reconstruction, nothing. Uh, I mean, their notion of civil war, just like your, your, your guest said, was basically that white men fought over this, and then, then, then black Americans were freed. And then maybe they know something about the Great Migration, but that it's like so much more uh, a, a, an inflection point for thinking about where we are today, about what we value, about how democracy functions, about how our built environment works, right? Like Clyde Woods, uh, this amazing writer, uh, scholar uh, from California, wrote a book about how plantations shaped Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, not just during the Civil War and after Reconstruction, but all the way up into the 70s and 80s. Yes. You know, that there were these, uh, the plantocracy, that there were these sort of uh, plantation owners that were able to dictate federal policy that basically kept black people from getting uh, water and, and, and jobs and, and training. So I think, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Reconstruction, and, and this is sort of the, I think one of the, like, the great sins of the United States is not just sort of those original ones, but how we hide it and then how we use that disguise to ensure that, that we hide it. And I just want to say one more thing, and I'll take any thoughts or anything off air. Uh, so Beyonce in Lemonade filmed part of her, her uh, video, that, that, that project, at Destrehan Plantation, mm-hmm. which is one of the first freedom colonies after uh, after the Civil War, where there were hundreds of black men learning the like, train. It was seized by the federal government to train black men on all sorts of trades, uh, on medicine. But the owner of that plantation had fled to, the, to Europe to, so he could avoid being held for treason. And then when Johnson became president, Johnson allowed him to come back, gave him his plantation back, and allowed him to force the, colony, the, the members of that colony to, to flee. Hmm. So we're thinking about, like, that's not a failure, right? That is built into the basic logic of running the country at that time and, and the way that it bleeds across yeah, it's, time. It's, it's anyway, willful, great, yes. Yeah, great no show. Uh, delighted to hear it. And, uh, and stay, no, stay warm. Thanks very much for the call and, and all of the great uh, insight there, Michael. Uh, could I could not respond to what Michael's talking about. One of the things that, that, that jumps out at me is you know, th- this lost exploration of, of Reconstruction and the, the end of it really makes it hard for people to understand the things that we see going on now, which have their roots in uh, in the things that did not get done uh, in that period. Or I would revise that. I would push back and say, it's not that they weren't done. It's that they were rolled back. They were rolled back. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think that instinct, I think that, that that distinction matters. So all of the, you know, African-Americans push for and get this sort of utopia. They get the right to land. They acquire land. They get the right to vote. They serve in office. They do all of the things that they're supposed to do. 
And then white supremacy takes it all the away. nation yeah. takes it all away. And, you know, sort of like white Americans believe that they're the only ones who, who should enjoy the privileges and freedoms that come with being citizens of the U.S. saw them take away all of that. And so that distinction matters. And the way we talk about this matters. You know, the historian Benjamin Brawley once said that other races have come, but it is on this one, Black people, that the country's history has turned as on a pivot. And so at virtually every point in U.S. history, African-Americans are there and their actions have shaped the outcomes of the nation. And there's no better example of that than the Civil War and Reconstruction. If African-Americans had just sat home, you know, uh, on farms and plantations during the Civil War, there would have been no need for an Emancipation Proclamation. Right. There would have been for no 13th Amendment. And so when we look at the history, uh, when we look at the history through marginalized peoples, African-Americans, Native Americans, women, people with disabilities, et cetera, we get a clearer understanding of what actually happened. And that's the story that we're trying to tell with Reconstruction. And in my experience teaching, when my students learn about Reconstruction, what actually happened, when, they, when we, they're able to move beyond this sort of distorted history and white supremacist serving history, uh, this narrative of failure, they understand the world today. They understand the arguments or debates over birthright citizenship mm. today. Mm. They understand voter suppression today. They understand police killings of unarmed Black people today. They completely understand the rampage at the Capitol. Wow. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Kadada Williams about her new podcast, Seizing Freedom. We will also continue to hear from you. We've got a lot of callers queued up to participate in the conversation. Derek on the West Side, Dennis in Dearborn, Dan in Detroit, Gary in Hamtramck. We'll try to get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Kadata Williams, Wayne State University professor, writer, and historian, who's got a new podcast called Seizing Freedom, which highlights the roles that African Americans played in the Civil War and Reconstruction, fighting for and securing our own freedom. Uh, we want to hear from you as well about uh, stories you were told about the Civil War and Reconstruction. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, before we get back to listeners, Kadada, I want to ask you about the role of women in this movement for freedom during and after the Civil War. And before I do that, I, I want to have us listen to a clip of one woman you highlight uh, in the podcast. Her name is Susie King Taylor. While men were heading into their first battles for the Union, Black women were also finding their place in the field, even if they couldn't enlist as soldiers. Susie King Taylor was born in Savannah, Georgia, and subject to laws that controlled her life and movement. In the early 1860s, Black people in Georgia needed permission from a white person to be out past nine at night. And educating Black people in the state was against the law. But Susie was lucky. She attended two clandestine schools taught by Black women where she learned to read and write. 
So I know so much of your work, Kadata, is about the intersection between gender and gender discrimination and bias and uh, white supremacy and, and racial inequality. This is kind of a point in the podcast where those two things seem to, to come together. It is. One of the things that we try to do, I mean, I think part of what happens is that when you look in the archive, when you look into the historical records, and you go in just wanting to know what's there, you're open to what you find. And you see and you encounter women like Susie King Taylor, who I think is a really interesting person in the context of, of the war. She serves, or she goes along with as a nurse, nurse, excuse me, with the 33rd U.S. Colored Troops. And she's only about 15 when she does this. And as a 15-year-old, she is playing a role in the fight for freedom, for herself, for her family, and for the future. And so what we see in the what we see when we look at these records is that oftentimes a war, uh, a history that centers on war tends to focus only on men fighting. And what we know is that all people are impacted by war. And in this case, we see Black women and children play a very active role in the fight for freedom. And we wanted to make a point to make sure that the audience knew that freedom that freedom is something that all African-Americans are invested in. Mm. And they all play a role in that fight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Gary in Hamtramck. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Um, I had uh, two questions centered around the uh, black resistance to racist violence. First of all, we know in Reconstruction that there were, uh, and was mentioned by your guests, that there were black elected officials. We've seen photos of blacks in the state legislators. Were there any blacks who were sheriffs in counties and actually had the force of arms to resist that? Hmm. And the second question is, what was the role of the Union Army while it was in the South? I mean, were they just sitting at, at bases? Were they in communities? And uh, and how many uh, how many while the Union Army was there were there actions where they took up arms against racist mobs? And also, were the uh, were any of the black troops that we found out about through the movie Glory were any of them? Uh, part of the uh, occupation army of the South yeah. during great questions. Great questions, Gary. Uh, Kadata, uh, give give Gary some insight here. Okay, I think I can answer them quickly. Yes, there were black sheriffs, and they did play a role. Um, and black people, as voters, they really understood the importance of having black sheriffs. Mm. So they vote for them, they elect them, they have them. But those sheriffs are essentially going to have a bullseye on their back by the white, the larger white population in the community or in the community surrounding their specific primarily black community. Um, in terms of union forces, union forces are there and they are an occupying army, but their numbers are shrinking. And part of what happens is that where their numbers decline, the level of violence increases. And part of what happens is that the ex-Confederates are making an argument for the fact that we're at peace, so why do we still have this occupying military force in our community? So elected officials, especially at the federal level, are wrestling with this. General Grant does send troops to beef up support to address violence in certain areas, but 
the violence will go down where the troops are, but it will increase in places where they're not. They can't sort of legitimately in peacetime re-blanket the South with troops mm. without potentially restarting the war. So that is one of the things that they are struggling with. But there is a lack of will on their part to address it. And in terms of Black soldiers, Black soldiers are absolutely part of the occupying Union force. And they are because they enroll, because they enlist in the army later. So Black people, Black men will play a significant role in that occupying force, but they have a bullseye on their backs too. Mm. And so in um, the episode that comes after this one, when we look, um, the episode that comes after this one, we look at, or several episodes later, we look at the Memphis riot. And the Memphis riot is a white rampage that lashes out not only on Black soldiers, Mm but also on black businessmen and women. Wow. Wow. Uh, Again, uh, Gary, thanks very much for the call uh, and the great questions. Um, Let's go quickly to Dan in Detroit. Dan, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but want to get you in here. Good morning. I just want good morning. I just wanted to touch on the, the legislative role uh, in reconstruction history of uh, African Americans, the image that uh, some people may have is the black and white still images stolen from uh, Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's very mm. racist yes. uh, portrayal of uh, reconstruction and post reconstruction America. And Hollywood has not helped uh, tell them the accurate story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan, uh, really appreciate the call and, and that, that great reference, uh, which is also important. Uh, Kadada, we're going to run out of time. I want to make sure, though, that we tell people where they can listen to this really great co- this great podcast. So you can listen on any platform that offers podcasts. We're everywhere. Um, And you can also visit our site, seizingfreedom.com. We've got maps, interactive maps that take you where we are. And you can access the platforms uh, where we're um, where you can listen to us there directly from the site. Yeah. And, And how many episodes will there be? So there will be eight narrative episodes for season one. We're hoping for season two. And we're also having interviews with artists and historians who also know these archives, Hmm. who will make the connections to the present day. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really, really amazing work. And it's always great to have you here to talk with us on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter is going to join us to talk about vaccine rollout. And we are going to talk about the Super Bowl with uh, with Bill Shea, uh, my, one of my favorite uh, discussions every year. One of the few times we actually talk about sports here. Uh, this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.